Um, so I'm actually here with uh, Professor Wu, Andy Wu. He's at the Harvard Business School, and he is the Arjun and Minu Melwini Family Associate Professor of Business Administration. He's basically done a lot of stuff um, with tech startups, thinking about decision-making within organizations and organizational design. Um, but he's also thriving in a very competitive envi environment. And uh, I thought it would be really fun or he volunteered to, to be on this channel and uh, just discuss some of the things. I think what we're gonna do is talk about today is maybe just you know, talk about his journey as being a PhD student or a scholar or a researcher. And then I'm gonna pick his brain at the end of this in terms of how do we actually make this whole reciprocity thing work? Um, and, you know, just, we're just gonna have a conversation. It's gonna be fun. So um, welcome so much. It's, it's great to see you, Andy. Dave, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, this has been really fun. Um, so, um, I just want to start with, you know, who are you? What's this? Who's this? This Andy Wu person? Yeah, well, so yeah, I'm Andy Wu. The it's hard to explain very quickly because I think there's many facets to my life and personality. But I think as far as a academic scholar and teacher, what really excites me nowadays is questions in technology strategy at the cutting edge. But I think going beyond that, I think my journey to this point is quite a long one, like I think many people in the profession. And I wish I could say that the path to my current point is like particularly well thought out or planned or envisioned, but I, I don't think any of us can really, really say that. And so if I had to go all the way back to the very beginning, the pivotal moment for me was actually the very first class I took in college. On my very first day in college, I took an econometrics course, introductory course with Josh Angrist, so where was that? What school is this? So, oh, people... so that was at, uh, at MIT. Okay. And so Josh Angus would, you know, in recent years would go on to win the Nobel Prize in economics. But prior to that point, he was just a regular professor. And he inspired in me this passion of combining my two interests of people and math. And so I really like people. I also in, enjoy math. I probably like the people better than the math, but, you know, they're both good things. And so I thought this idea of social sciences, of using quantitative methods and other kinds of methods to study people was really interesting. And my early interests actually were in public policy and public finance. And so I eventually, because of that experience, would go on to apply to a PhD program. And so this is another one of those decisions that I wish I could say was like more well thought out. But I have to say that I was excited about the possibility of research, but to be completely honest, I was not fully aware of like what the actual publishing process entails in research. I had no idea what that would be like. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah. So like what, so how did that happen? What was that decision? So for me, I get to tell you a little bit about, about, <laughs> I actually started getting into research. So I went to University of Waterloo um, and they have co-op programs and I wanted to do R&D. So I got into R&D um, places, um, programming and stuff. So as my undergrad was in ChemEng. And then I actually had a roommate on one of them that was a PhD in mathematics. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I always just by chance. And, and then it sort of got a bug in my ear. I'm not sure what your journey was or how you thought about this. Uh, well, so at MIT, they had this great program called Europe. Uh, UROP, Undergraduate Research oh, Opportunities yeah. Program. And so some significant fraction, like 70 to 90% of the undergrads at MIT get a chance to work with faculty on research. And this was very unique in the sense that I think most university students never get a chance to see what the university actually does. I think they just see the classroom environment, whereas you and I know that most of what the university does is research, right? And so I had a chance through that program to work as a research assistant for Jonathan Gruber, Peter Temin, and David Otter. And they're in you know hit economic history and labor economics and public policy and public economics. And being their assistant allowed me to see like what are the possibilities of what we could take the tools from social sciences and use it to studying. 
And so John Gruber in particular, he had done a bunch of research looking at like the using economic lens to look at, you know, healthcare policy, you know, smoking regulations, gun regulations, all kinds of stuff like that. And so I think that really opened the door of what we could do with social sciences. Okay. Um, so was it somebody that was influential or was it just like a moment that you had, like, was it, or was it just kind of like this ongoing thing? Was it, um, you know, did your parents say that you have to become, <laughs> you know, a PhD or something like that? What was the, what was motivated? Like what moment were you just like, I'm going to do this? Well, you know, I wish I had a better story on this, but, you know, at least in terms of my family background, my father had immigrated to the United States to do a PhD. And so as far as the career options I could have done, the PhD was one that my parents would certainly approve of. I wouldn't say they forced me or even, even directly encouraged me, but they would be fine with it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess like one important moment in like the various like potpourri of things I could have done in my life was in, uh, in college at the time, the sort of stereotypical set of things you could have done would be to go into management consulting or investment banking. And yeah. I had done this internship in investment banking, which fully taught me that I should never go into investment banking. <laughs> and so once I had ruled that one out, maybe consulting would have worked, but I was so jaded by that experience. You know what? I'm just going to go do the PhD <laughs> and then stay in the academic world. All right. So what's the difference between industry and academia then, given that you had this experience? I'm so curious speaking specifically about investment banking, what frustrated me so much about that job is I felt like being smart or having good ideas didn't make me better at the job. And I found that intensely frustrating. And in the end, it was a lot of it was just both brute force work effort as well as managing sort of office politics. And yeah. so I wanted to find a way I could get beyond that and do a job where I think thinking and then thinking of creative ideas and working with other people in a collaborative way was more a part of the job. Yeah, it's not to say that it's like the whole job, <laughs> but, you know, it's probably more comparatively a little bit more than yeah. you know, it's more substance of it. Well, one of the uh, things I enjoy most about my job currently is so what for example, when we teach uh, in our, the first year of the MBA program, uh, we have a set of faculty that all teach the same course. And so when we come in on those days to teach, people are sometimes here at like 5, 6 a.m. And those like conversations before class are the exactly the kind of thing I, I live for and relish in that like we're having like really deep substantive debates about the content we're going to teach in class. Like what is Walmart's strategy? Is it a good strategy or not? And why? And like, I like to think of it as like we are having like sort of a real life sports center kind of environment like every morning. Yeah. But Wait, about so, yeah. I mean, tell me about this because uh, it's a little different, right? Like I teach primarily undergrads um, and, and PhDs. Um, tell me about this experience of being, what was your first experience of getting up in front of the classroom? And all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do here? Well, you know, David, it was absolutely terrifying. So, <laughs> just for context here, Harvard originally hired me as a business school professor when I was 25. And so I started out very, very young as a professor. And so my first year teaching, in fact, many of the students that I was teaching were people I had gone to college with. And so I remember walking down from my office to the classroom on the very first day. And the thought in my head at the time was, you know, this just isn't for me. I should just quit right now and go work for Google or something. <laughs> and so I really thought about just turning around and not doing it. But then I went in there and it turned out better than I thought. But of course, I think, especially teaching at the MBA level, there's like a pretty steep learning curve involved. Yeah. And, you know, for better or for worse, we haven't found any better way of teaching teachers how to teach than throwing them into the fire. Yeah. And yeah. so it took me, uh, I would say, two years to sort of figure things out. And I think we're on a good streak now. But so... Um, and like, how do you get over that, though? Like, I know it's a little bit daunting at the beginning, but what's what's the story? Is it just a learning curve story? Um, you know, how do you become a better teacher? Do you still get nervous? Is, is that a thing? Uh, I still get nervous every single yeah. class. I think many of my colleagues would say the same thing. Yeah. Although the the source of the nerves, I think, is a bit different now. The at this point in time, like the nerves come more to do with the fact that for like a case discussion class, like pretty much anything could happen during class. And it's more of the excitement of thinking about all the different ways the discussion could emerge. 
Yeah. At the time, it was more, I would, earlier on, it was more like an insecurity of, can I get up there and like demonstrate my expertise and like maintain the discussion and gain people's respect? And fortunately for me, like there were a couple like earlier experiences I had in college that I think helped prepare me for this. And so mm -hmm. I did have a little bit of preparation. Well, tell me about it. Like, yeah. what what's the story there? Yeah, so the three pivotal experiences that, like, helped prepare me to be an instructor were in college, I worked as a DJ, I was a coxswain for a rowing team, and I was also a campus tour guide. <laughs> and so let me explain what each of those experiences gave me. So working as a campus tour guide at MIT... The nice thing about that environment is that the, uh, sorry, let me just close this. Um, so the nice thing about that environment is that the speech is the same. So you give the same tour route and you give the same speech. And so as a result, you get really good at giving that speech and you have a lot of chances to experiment on the margins with what kind of jokes you tell, what stories you tell and when you tell them and where people should be standing, where I should be standing. And you get a yeah. lot of repetitions in a controlled environment to do that. So the second experience that mattered to me was being a coxswain on a crew team. Dave, do you know what a coxswain is? I think it's a guy who like shouts and counts. Yep. Right? right. And yeah. Dave, there are two requirements to be a coxswain. Do you know what the two requirements are? Uh, I don't know. Okay. So a coxswain is the, in a, in a traditional rowing shell with eight rowers, the coxswain is the person that sits at the end of the boat, steering the boat and giving orders to the rowers. And okay. the rowers are facing backwards, only the coxswain faces forwards, right? And the two requirements that, jokingly, we say to be a coxswain are you have to be loud and you have to be small. <laughs> well, I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah. And yeah, you don't want to weigh down the boat. But then yeah. the other thing to know about rowing is that it helps to be tall. So power equals force times distance. So the rowers themselves tend to be very large people. And so this is a very, that. very unique leadership experience where you have one small person bossing around a lot of tall people. <laughs> but not only tall, but like they're, they're very mad. Yeah. Uh, they're jock big. athletes, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a very unique leadership experience to be in because normally that isn't the sort of social power dynamic you would expect based on physical stature, right? Yeah. yeah. And on top of that, it's also an environment that requires like military levels of discipline and order following. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're in the boat, like you really need to create a culture that everyone in the boat has to listen to the coxswain, right? You right. want everyone to be coordinated in the middle of the race. So as a result, they create a system for training coxswains where when you're even when you're on land, the coxswain is in charge of everything. So when you're on land, you tell specific rowers, it's your job today to like clean up the boat. It's your job to move the oars. It's your job to do this. It's your job to do that. And the coxswain is responsible for doing that. And the most important thing I learned from that experience is how to speak as if you expect people to listen to you. And so there's a certain tone of voice and a certain confidence that you have to have in order to do that. And the way I benchmark this now is if I'm going to walk in a classroom, how quickly can I get all the students to calm down and listen to me right at the start of the class? And I think that's equivalent to the, the skill set I learned as a coxswain, which is that if you're bossing someone around to go clean up the oars, in order for the team to be effective, that person has to do it without any question. Yeah. So how did you get into that? Like, let's go back all the way into yeah. high school. Yeah. I think that this is really useful for, um, you know, hopefully, you know, don't get scared or anything. But, you know, these videos are persistent and it's really nice for other people to sort of see, um, you know, maybe they're in high school or maybe they're, I've got, a, you know, my kid is in grade nine right now. What's the story? Like, how did you actually build up to get to the confidence level to be shouting at these six foot five individuals that are far bigger than you? You know, I, I didn't really think I had that much of that skill in high school. I think it's something I really built up in college. But in high school, I had a couple experiences that started to give me a feel that that'd be something I'd be interested in. So I I had a chance to be, uh, you know, captain or president of the math team and the science team. And there's some like practice in those skills at that point. But that's a little bit different because the math team physically is not quite the rowing team. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And I also had a chance in high school to be an intern in the Massachusetts State House in the state legislature. Cool. And in that environment, you know, you're a very young person around, like, obviously much older and politically important people. And you learn a little bit about, like, watching those people, how they communicate and how they manage things. And also in middle school, actually, I used to be a caddy at the uh, Belmont Country Club. And that was another environment where I got to see, like, some real business leaders and how they interact with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. So you're like totally into the your Caddyshack, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were definitely in the in the Caddyshack. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's too much fun. Um, so then, you know, how do you get the the confidence to sort of get up and do this? I know it takes a lot of time and effort. Um, you know, what is it about you? I mean, obviously, so I, I'm just going to put this out there here. You know, you're you're a talented person. <laughs> you're very talented. You actually make me very nervous around you because you're like insanely talented. What is the secret? What's the what's the expertise? You know, uh, how did you actually develop all of these experiences along the way to give you the confidence to go on and um, not only to, to speak to these rowers, but, you know, the future leaders of, of tomorrow. So not sure how actionable this is, but I would say that I think the confidence for public speaking or any other skill set comes from the knowledge that having your greatest fear realized is not that bad. And yeah. to give you an example, I, you know, for many years, I had a recurring nightmare about like missing a flight. So mm-hmm. I'd be like, you know, it's like you're in your dream and you're like running really slowly and you can't get to the plane. Right. And then you miss the flight. And then when I started as a professor, I stopped having that dream because I started having a dream about showing up to class unprepared and like not <laughs> knowing what I was supposed to teach that day. So that was my new nightmare. That's hilarious. I have the. I still every once in a while I have this one about showing up to econometrics class, and it's the same thing. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my gosh, what did I do here? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I don't want to get too much into like you know armchairing Freudian psychology, but like you know I think that's symbolic of sort of the things that I'm scared of, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. then what happened was as I started teaching. Uh, especially in executive education, there's a lot of things that move around. There was definitely many experiences where what I was supposed to teach, I couldn't teach anymore, or like the computer projector wasn't working, or all the things that I was really scared about just happened. Yeah. And then over time, that once you realize that the whole potpourri of bad things that can happen isn't that bad, then yeah. uh, eventually that sort of nightmare goes away. Absolutely. So what's the most um, sort of frightening thing that you've done in the last little bit to sort of push your your boundaries? You know, where are you? Because a lot of the whole, I'm assuming you probably have seen me online, but it's me just like telling people you're going to be all right, right? Like whatever happens to you, you're likely going to be all right. Um, so what are some things that have you have done recently where you're like, I don't know if I should be doing this, but I, I'm just going to have the gumption to do it anyways. So not so recently, I think one of those would be like teaching much older executives. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I had the first chance to teach exec ed. And for a variety of reasons out of my control, my first audience was CEOs who are all in their 50s and 60s. Yeah. And that's like an absolutely terrifying thing because I have no real uh, credibility and an experience sense in front of that audience. Yeah. And nor do I claim to, right? But then once I got in there, I realized, and again, part of this narrative of having your fears come alive is that once we were uh, coming in there to teach, I realized that actually that there's a lot that I can offer, particularly because of you know my youth or my difference from them. And that's why they are sitting there listening to me. And so that's something that gave me a lot of confidence about the role that I could play in this world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I want you to. Yeah, go ahead. The other thing that I am wrestling with right now is like this notion of coming up with like a, a sort of a memorable research idea. And so what I've been working through, you know, for most of my time during my PhD in my early years as an assistant professor is that I I would say that I feel constrained by the boundaries of what the academic literature says. So there's sort of these existing frameworks like resource-based view or something, and that we are writing papers that 
have to stay within the boundaries of what that literature is defined, right? Yeah. And one thing I am in the process of building up the confidence for is the idea that, hey, at some point, Michael Porter just sat down and wrote down Porter's Five Forces, or Jay Barty at some point just sat down and wrote Resource-Based View. And we can do that too. And so I'm in the process of trying to build up the confidence and the ability to actually say, okay, we are just going to come up with the new framework that serves the world today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, jump on the whole reciprocity project, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the, so, so you're facing some of the things that I sort of face on a regular basis, right? Like, so this is a, um, such a weird thing to do this, to be publicly open about all of this. And so you're tapping in some of my worst fears because, um, you know, for me, I think like, man, what am I doing here? This is like the stupidest thing in the world. Everybody else has done this before. Um, you know, anybody that's sort of, and, and on top of it, like it's kind of an illegitimate exercise, um, you know, in, in the field to sort of to build a, you know, platform. Um, so, you know, a lot of this kind of stuff is me just coming to the terms of just like, hell, I'm just going to do it and I'm all right. Um, and whatever happens, happens, right? Like it's it's a bit of a, yeah. it's, it's a bit of, you know, doing one of these things where you're sitting on the, on the hillside and just being as, as, as Zen-like as possible. How um, did you find the confidence or motivation to pursue that? I, you know, so, so with me, it was like, okay, um, it's a bit of some cost fallacy, right? So um, I go, go into my, it was my second year of being assistant professor. And, um, you know, I go and I wanted to get some copy editing done and we just couldn't afford it in our department, right? So then I was like, hell, I'm teaching innovation entrepreneurship. Let me go do this. And so I try to get a team together. It like totally flops here. Um, and then I was like, oh, well, then I just need to hire a developer. And I'm kind of like, you know, kind of a little stupid with this. I was like, just hire a developer. And, and, you know, it turns out it's really expensive. And so once I build this thing, I put it in the internet and nothing happens. Nothing. Right. Like, I'm like, look at this. I just spent all this money and I'm broke because of it. Or we're broke. And this is at a time, you know, we need we needed the money. Um, so then somebody told me, it was like, just go on the internet and start talking about this, go on YouTube. And I started talking um, and the videos that were becoming, and I kind of almost, I felt like a little swindled at the beginning because there was like, I was following some of these YouTubers that were telling you to like, you know, it's going to explode and all this, you know, all the garbage that's on the internet. Um, but so then, then I started to realize that there's there's a group of people that resonate with this, and it's really coming down to that this journey that we go through is really challenging, right? And that it's not necessarily a technical solution. I mean, it can be. I think that there there is a technical solution to some of these things, but there's also this like, hey, you know, um, you might need a little bit of moral support. And so the way I think about myself now is I'm the person that like two o'clock in the morning when you're freaking out and you're like, what the hell is happening to me? So I try to like pick these like really kind of tough questions to talk about. And I try to talk about them on the internet, which they've been increasingly getting more like, oh, these are tougher questions to, to walk people through. Um, and I was really nervous. It was very like, for me, it was like super scary because I don't know who's out there. It's not only like colleagues and things like that, but then, you know, there are people that are not so nice in this world, um, you know, broadly speaking, that can do dangerous things. Um, so it was, you know, it's still this journey of being just okay inside um, and, and realizing that, hey, no matter what happens, we're going to be okay. Um, and, and we have a lot of life to live. We're still young. If I screw this up royally, you just park it on the side. Everybody can make fun of me for a while. <laughs> um, and then, and then jump in and do something else. Um, I hope that like explains yeah. where I'm at. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. Do you think that the sort of lack of public conversation about our struggles as scholars and teachers is something like specific to our, like uniquely difficult in our profession? Or do you think that it's sort of generic across? 
I, I mean, I, I honestly think it's 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 pretty generic um, that there are a lot of these things that are happening. And as you know, right, like we're we're management scholars and these things yeah. happen all the time. Um, and it's a matter of finding that group of people that sort of resonate. But there are some unique things that we deal with that are really curious, right? So we've got these weird problems with expertise, as you pointed out. Like some of us are really young. We're starting out. We're talking to old people that have far more expertise than us, but we're experts in these little tiny areas. Uh, we have weird, we've invested massively in our careers beyond what most people understand. We've got, uh, you know, kind of like a categorical discount on what PhDs actually do, right? Like, um, and, you know, because of that, we have weird wage and uh, um, issues where, you know, some of the people that we're teaching make more than us and you know, vastly much more than us. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a unique field that um, there are unique problems that we experience, but I think some of these things are pretty generalizable beyond what we actually do. Um, I hope so, right? Like, I think, yeah. I think we're not that weird. We're just, you know, we're human species doing something. Um, in this in this area is just maybe some of these these problems are a little bit more compounded um and then we're also the other thing that's weird is that we're evaluated on um outcomes that are often largely outside of our control um for for various different reasons um and then you know it's there's a sort of layer of um, popularity status competition that goes on behind it right <laughs> how we demonstrate we somehow made it. So it's it's a very interesting context. And when I started doing this, I was just like super nervous because, um, you know, I am I'm opening up the kimono mm -hmm. with it, but there is a lot of people that need to be told that they're they're okay, um, and and you know these struggles, no matter who you are, uh, we're all we're all going through them, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of that, the, the challenges like specific to our profession, like one of the things I've wrestled with and been perplexed by is like the sort of the canonical notion of peer review in our profession. And, yeah. it's, you know, it's at the level of the journals, but it also happens in hiring and promotion processes and the, the way generally that status is established in our profession. It's all based on peer review. Right. Yeah. But I find the term peer review kind of misleading in that. Historically, I think it did actually used to be peer review, but I think there's many moments today where it feels much more like adversarial review. Yeah. And I don't think it used to be like that. I don't think it was intended to be like that. So there, there's a couple I've, I've kind of done a little bit of digging into this. So back in the 1970s, there was a like sociology research that was done on, I think it was the, the scientists at the Apollo mission. Um, and they were... Like it was just all this bickering that was going on in the same sort of way in the scientific profession, the same way that we do this now, right? Um, but I think maybe it's a little bit more, uh, reviewers are maybe more astute today because we have a lot more technologies that we can use, technologies being used broadly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, it's just, there's a lot of nuance, right? We know a lot more than what we used to in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, well, let me ask you this, since you know the historical context better. If you look at like peer review of journals in the past, are the peer reviewers intended to be like developmental or like gatekeepers? Oh, that and is- Has that I, changed? That's a good question. Uh, what do you think? Cause I am, um, I don't know. What do you think? Again, I'm obviously was not alive in that time period, but my speculation is like it wasn't always intended to be like a gatekeeping process. I think there was just less competition to be publishing in any given journal. And yeah. so it's really just like a feedback giving process rather than a quality like assessment for you know, blocking you at the door. Well, it's super interesting. I talk to other people. I mean, I it's my core group of friends, right? So it's not necessarily that representative. But other people in other fields, like scientific fields, it's less of that that goes on and more of, hey, let's just kind of make sure that you did your job right. But but I think like if you were trying to publish in nature and science and stuff, it's it's pretty adversarial. <laughs> I think it's pretty hard to get into those journals. 
Yeah, um, so maybe that's part of the challenge here is we have a fairly limited set of journals. And as a result, yeah. those journals have the nature science kind of property. But yeah. like in engineering, we don't have the broader set of conference proposals and like other sort of field journals that are acceptable where you can have that developmental aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we also have this weird thing that goes on in our field where we develop papers for a relatively long time um, versus like in engineering, you'd, you'd write like, you know, 20 pages and, and get it published someplace. And it's more of a, you know, where you just put it up there and see what would ideas stick, which maybe, I don't know, I've been toying with that. Is that, you know, the best possible course of action to do that is just to put it out there, right? Like just, um, you know, the, 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 the minimal barrier would be blogging and then you sort of see, um, you know, what ideas are actually sticking. And I think here's the thing that's interesting. And you and I are kind of witnesses to this or sort of pay attention to it, is that the people that are doing that in this modern age on the digital internet are actually winning, right? Like in the mm -hmm. sense of, you think of like, um, and they're wonderful people. I'm not sort of um, uh, like Seth Godin or... Uh, Simon Sinek, right? Like they have enormous impact um, and they're sort of essentially doing a lot of the same stuff that we end up doing. Mm. Um, they're not gathering data, but they're doing some of the stuff that we're doing. So it's an interesting problem that we have I've been thinking about it too, right? Like what's what's your thoughts on on should we actually just remove the review process altogether? So first off, I think that uh, I'm very jealous of Simon Sinek and I see his TikTok videos come up all the time and I would love to just have, feel like I had the ability <laughs> to do that. Yeah. But uh, in terms of our sort of academic process, the I think the transitional point that we could go through to get to something closer to what you're talking about is that I would love to see journal articles get shorter and the publication process go faster so fewer yeah. rounds, shorter papers, and in general, I think the, they should be looser on the volume of papers that get published. So, of course, that would raise the standard for us about how many papers we'd have to publish. But I actually think that would be a fairer benchmark than what's currently happening, which is that at many schools, like an entire person's career depends, depends on having three A publications and yeah. noise that goes into that, I think, is deeply unfair. Yeah, yeah. and it, um, Or, you know, somebody had suggested I heard, I think it was it was Joe Baum or somebody had mentioned this, who is a, you know, he's, he's, he's long into the career at University of Toronto. Um, and he was saying, like, why not have, like, just pick one or two papers that you get tenure in, in, in the rest of it. You, you just pick your best stuff. And then that's how you demonstrate that you're tenurable, um, which is another way to get around that. Um, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's a really interesting problem. That's what I was thinking about. So, so this, the, the platform, the reciprocity platform, as I want to propose, what if we can actually build a platform where it's basically an unrejectable paper out of it, right? So you work through the platform, the platform sort of walks you through so many different things um, and steps along the way that sort of helps you create a decent, I mean, obviously it's, you know, there it'll be rejectable at some point, but it walks you through and makes it like a decent um, paper, a decent, decent idea. Um, because I think we, so part of what we have too, is we have this issue with um, expertise and we have a lot of expertise that are, are sort of siloed. But if you think about the world, if we tap into more individuals around the world and we tap into at, like like citizen science kind of ideas, we can we can accelerate science dramatically with the both, both the use of machines, like machine learning, but mm -hmm. also um, tapping into, maybe there's a high school student someplace that's, that's mm. right? But they don't know how to frame this idea um, and, and have them walk through generating these particular ideas. No, I think that's really awesome. That is a, a great vision. And at minimum, like it solves like a pet peeve of mine, which is that like any management journal is by definition, like two to three years behind the state of art. Yeah, right. The lag exactly. of getting information out there. So, like, there's yeah. n like all the stuff we're publishing is even within our knowledge base is three years defined behind, yeah. right? 
Yeah, we're just how are we gonna appeal to managers that way? I just saw my first COVID paper come out in AMJ. I'm not sure if there's another one, but uh, if there's been more, but so AMJs are big, one of our big journals, but yeah, that's, I mean, this is three, almost four years later. Yeah, but that's almost like a waste, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's bizarre, um, but whatever. Um, it is, it's the field that we actually live and work in. So tell me about your experiences of being in tech and then transitioning to, um, you know, the professor role. Yeah. So again, I had a real, like I went through the academic thing fairly in a fairly streamlined way, but as part of that process, actually in graduate school, I actually started a, a technology startup. And so in graduate school, I started a company called Identified Technologies, with my co-founder, uh, Dick Zhang. And Dick Zhang is the real like leader of the company. So he would go on to manage the company full time. And so we built drone hardware and software for the construction, mining, and industrial industries. And mm. so that was a really exciting process where I learned a lot about entrepreneurship and management firsthand. But broadly beyond that, I've also been very involved in the tech sector, primarily actually because of my experience as an undergrad at MIT, in that most of my classmates have gone on to you know very big and great things in technology and some not so good things in technology. So several of my classmates now work at OpenAI, making countless millions in salary. <laughs> and uh, another one of my classmates is a gentleman named Sam Bankman-Fried. Do you know who that is? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, unfortunately, he doesn't have his company's name on the stadium in Miami. anymore. No, not anymore. But he he technically is one of my classmates. He did do great things, but not so good things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that's an interesting problem to face, right? Sometimes you get... I think that's where uh, governance sort of plays big role. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting problem in tech because you often are flying the plane or you're building a plane as you as you make it. Uh, yeah. And I think people kind of get stuck or they kind of get, um, they forget that, that some of the stuff actually matters. Yeah, and so as an example of that, one of the, cases that I teach in my classes, an old case on the browser wars, Netscape versus Microsoft. And the we have a whole bunch of other cases about Microsoft that follow on. But you know, nowadays, we teach a case about cloud computing also with Microsoft Azure. And so as part of the class, we invited in a Microsoft executive to come speak to the students. And he actually, he runs cloud now, but actually he was just a young engineer at Microsoft at the time when they were in the browser wars and doing what is now known to be like illegal stuff to kill off Netscape. Yeah. And the students asked him like, what were you guys thinking at the time? How could you possibly have done this? And actually he explained that actually at the time they didn't think they were doing anything wrong because they were, they thought of Microsoft themselves as an upstart technology company. They were growing technology and growing the internet and growing the future. And who could, how could you possibly do something wrong when you're leading the future? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was really an interesting time because I do remember the optimism uh, of tech at that time, of, of particularly information tech. Um, there was a great deal of optimism. I don't think people really were understanding that the implications that were coming from it, which is part of the reason why Facebook has gotten into trouble, I oh, yeah. think, too. Right. That, hey, you know, we're messing around with things here and they have large impacts. And, and so maybe we should actually think about these impacts. Um, but and so I, but I think I get... we need to have like a level of both empathy and concern with those executives in that even I think Meta and Facebook is a great example of, of sort of the Microsoft problem I just described. So, uh, I mean, Zuckerberg would describe the mission of his company as to connect people. Yeah. Right. And. You can, I think we can empathize with the fact that if that's your mindset, how could there be anything wrong with connecting people? Yeah. And so we've seen now that there are a lot of negative consequences that come from that. But, you know, it, it took Zuckerberg many years to fully recognize that. But at least in the early days, I, you know, it seems fine, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily want to hear the opinions of, of Uncle, uh, you know, Uncle Clement or whatever. That's <laughs> yeah. Don't want to see those every day. So yeah. that's part of the reason. But yeah. but you know that's 
you, you forget that there is a social structure in society that actually matters. Yes, um, exactly. And I think uh, the crypto folks have run into that repeatedly as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like it's going to be hard to make that transition in terms of. Um, so I, that's one question I would like to ask. And then I want to get back into what's your thoughts of what I should do or how how should I take the, the reciprocity project? I kind of want to tap your brain because you're yeah. very, very smart. Um, uh, so where uh no i lost my thought um oh yeah so so in terms of cryptocurrency do you think we're ever going to make a transition to cryptocurrency so i would argue that i think we've already made a lot of the transition and yeah. so and for context here i am surrounded by lots of like crypto fanatics and i would not consider myself one of them the I, I think there's this broad vision of the value of decentralization that reaches almost like a religious level that I don't buy into. And and yeah. just at the basic level that like, look, a, a SQL centralized server is like always faster than a decentralized database, right? That said, it, I would say today a significant amount of the, the sort of the uh, black market economy actually does exist in the crypto world. And that is hmm. a larger portion of the economy than we are willing to admit. Yeah, And yeah. so the parts of the economy that we would expect to transition to that form of payment, I think already already has. And would we expect like broader society to make a transition? I don't see it as like necessary. So I would probably bet against it. But yeah. I, I would say that we shouldn't dismiss crypto because it already has had a huge impact. Like if you if I were kidnapped today my ransom would be paid out in Bitcoin, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, not to say, but but it's not only just like those really bad illicit things that are going on, but there's a lot of informal economy stuff that is is helpful for, right? That we just, and particularly, you know, in America, we're, we're, we're privileged to, to be in a country that has very well-defined rules mm -hmm. and things like that, but in, in other countries, yeah. Um, it's not so clear sometimes and you don't want some folks being part of that. So I understand the whole argument. from it, And I'm sympathetic to that as well. So the United Nations recognizes about 180 different currencies. I would yeah. say crypto is probably more reliable than say 170 of them. <laughs> and so there's many people in the world for which this actually is a preferable form of like payment and, you know, data tracking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I would never have, um, sort of thought about does the united nations recognize crypto uh, i'm not sure about uh, so right now no because the the currencies are recognized as part of having a country recognized a country yeah. okay yeah um that would be a fascinating turning point i think for it to have and that's why i always thought was like you need the backing of some agency that's very very legitimate um, some institution, not an agency, but an institution that's very legitimate before it starts going mainstream. I just have not seen it yet. So once the Fed starts really, really talking about it, I know that they're they're very much interested in it. Yeah. But once it becomes a mainstream, um, and and you know what, make for the technology part of it, it's pretty awesome. Or you know, even the um, the sort of spinoff thing with the uh, gosh, the the contracts, um, the Blockchain. Smart contracts. Your smart contracts is amazing, right? The actual yeah. technology is really cool. Yeah. And there's a lot of benefit from it, but it's just, as you know, the social process behind it, it, it takes a long time um, to to get people to buy into it, to, to get, I think they, in, in the tech world, they call it the normals or the regulars, right? Like just regular people to buy into this kind of stuff. Well, Dave, let me pitch you a crazy idea I had. So I was thinking about just without anyone's permission, just making NFTs of everyone's publication and then giving people the chance to buy the like Ethereum NFT of a paper that, you know, you or somebody else had published. So that sounds really crazy and cool. And I've thought about actually building that into the platform as like a final step that you could do that. Um, but I would deeply worry. I don't know how you would. Be. So if you were to do that, which is cool. Um, you would be fighting a battle with the publishers. Well, basically, all it needs to have is just a, a pointer at the DOI of a paper, right? So yeah. none of the copyrighted material exists in the blockchain. It's just the DOI, which is public. 
I wonder what value would be added to that. That's, that's really interesting. I would be curious to sort of think about that. Yeah. yeah so the hypothetical is, would you pay me one cent to have your NFT of your paper? Maybe. Um, or somebody else's paper. So I was thinking about it more of not necessarily in terms of the, the value that's being generated, but I was thinking of it a way to prevent things like plagiarism or like a, a mm. way to like lock it, um, let, lock the content, as you know, that this stuff is always ever changing. Um, so like, a, I think like that's a, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that would go well yeah. with the platform idea you have where if people want to yeah. make a stamp that this idea came up with first, even though it's not published yet. The blockchain yeah. would be definitely a way of doing that. Yeah, exactly. Although right now the limitation is that it's like hard to load too much data onto the blockchain. Yeah, yeah, that's that is true. I don't know how much you can actually uh, the whole infrastructure behind it. I haven't really played with it. I'm not sure if you have, but yeah, um, I have a little bit. I made for my course on tech strategy. I made like a a, a token called the HBS Strategy and Technology Token, named after cool. my course, and I give it out to my students. So I've tried it out a bit. Uh, it's still high friction relative to yeah. any other way of doing this. And and what was the what what happened with that? Because I was sort of thinking about something similar. Well, the I, I do it just as a way of letting students play around with the blockchain. So I make the token, and then students have to make a wallet, and then they have to exchange it and stuff. And so they get a sense of like how the public keys and private keys work. And yeah. most importantly, what I want them to see is that, look, this is just a different variant of a database. So like yeah. once I transfer them their token, they can go to the website and look at all the transfers and be like, oh, this is pretty straightforward. It's not as magical as like we're trying to make it seem. It's just like this is just a, a new way of implementing a database. Yeah, and then absolutely. The joke I tell, though, is I tell my students, look, like I've given you these tokens. Uh, you need to now convince other people that these tokens are valuable and those will convince other people. Right. And then we'll all be rich together. Right. And, uh, and look, and the, the important clarification here is that is not a pure, a pyramid scheme. It is a triangle strategy. <laughs> so um, I think, I mean, that's ultimately what it's going to come down to is finding that social legitimacy. I think, you know, yeah, yeah that's, these will work if you have that legitimacy. So if you were a Michael Porter, and you you tokenized your book, you probably would do okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, if you're you know an Andy or a Dave, uh, good luck. <laughs> but but I think the prem the whole like sort of core religious premise of this is that we don't need the centralized authority. That uh, if you can get enough of Andy and Dave's together, that we in a decentralized way can be equivalent to a Michael Porter, right? That is true. That is true. Um, again, I don't buy that narrative, but that's what the, the true believers here would argue. <laughs> you can create something that is, that is better than, than the centralized authority. So, um, two last thoughts or two mm -hmm. before we, we go, cause I don't yeah. want to keep you here the whole day. Um, so what would you do to make this whole reciprocity work? So I'm going to tell you, um, I still get, it's hard to get people. So I get people to actually go onto the platform and you know sign up as reviewers but i don't get them like submitting anything and that's super hard to figure out that problem um and then how do i build make it seem more legitimate and make it seem more like hey this is a thing people should maybe take a look at it yeah well i think there's two routes i would consider first is in terms of the target audience here and the second is in terms of the sort of entry entry strategy. So in terms of the target audience, the business academia is expanding broadly and especially globally. And a lot of our existing institutions for business academia are Western oriented. Yeah. And there's many parts of the world trying to enter our world that don't have access to those institutions. And I mean, in the sense of like, you know, to publish an AM Academy of Management Journal, there's a lot of weird rules about how you do that that are non-codified, right? Uh, so for those people, those this platform would be especially valuable. And so I think reaching out to those people, they get real benefit from having at least some way for their ideas to disseminate. Otherwise, we're sort of keeping them, keeping them out. The second route I would consider is thinking about the platform more as like a uh, starting off as a toolkit that enables 
the distribution of content rather than the specific platform that lets people search for content. And yeah. so this is more of like a Substack narrative. So Substack doesn't help you sell your blog, but it does give you a way to post the blog. And so in, in that sense, it's not the readership is not bounded by your existing user base, but rather the uh, whatever that particular poster of content can distribute their content out to, right? Uh -huh. And so I think the best example of this is actually the early days of YouTube. So YouTube, nowadays, we think it is a platform that connects like viewers of videos with producers of videos. But actually before what it served as was actually a video embedding tool that was primarily used in websites like MySpace. And so basically producers of video would benefit from that tool because otherwise there's no way to get the video onto MySpace. And then eventually once enough critical mass was built up by the people posting videos to host on MySpace, those videos are also available for viewers to view on YouTube. Cool. And so that's sort of a, what we call like a platform envelopment kind of strategy. And so if this were a tool for posting content that could be linked in to be distribute content onto, if I wanted to post a research idea onto Twitter, the Twitter format doesn't really let me do that. So I could use your tool to post onto Twitter, something like that. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, if I'll try to build something in like that at this moment. So yeah. um, something, I'm just trying to solve people's problems at this moment. So yeah. um, this audience that we have, this is the last thing, yeah. is mostly like researchers, mostly, and but it's it's pretty broad. Like, um, so what would you tell somebody that is interested in this field? Um, you know, how would you actually go about navigating the field? What What's your, your key insight um, going forward? Well, I think first off, they should reach out to Dave and Andy. I think we're the kind of people that want to help out. But after that, the process starts with having the right mentorship, which again is 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 constraining in that not everyone has access. But anyone who is generically in some institution of higher education likely has some professor that has some PhD and they've seen some portion of this process. And I think that's where the conversation has to start. And then there's a lot of, unfortunately, like uncodified knowledge about how progression in our profession works. And maybe one day reciprocity can solve that. But in the short term, I think it's a matter of finding the people who can give you that uh, non-codified information. And beyond that, like in terms of another source for the non-codified information, I do think that associations like the Academy of Management have worked very hard to actually make that non-codified information available to an audience that isn't traditionally tied into the network of business academia. And that's something that uh, actually both you and I are working on that I think we're very proud of. Yeah, absolutely. It's very cool. I um, I try not to mention it as much, but um, yeah, if you guys ever need, or you folks ever need anything, there are some great resources on uh, the Academy of Management websites uh, and our uh, strategy division as well. There's lots of stuff there, um, particularly on YouTube, if you want to go check it out. Absolutely. So, um, Andy, I don't want to keep your too much time. Um, this was awesome speaking to you. You're always a delight. You're super fun to be around. And it was really fun to to listen to your story about uh, being a coxman on, on one of these rowboats. Um, it's really a, a pleasure, and I absolutely enjoyed being around you. So thanks so much for um, telling your story and, and letting other people hear what you're about. Dave, thank you for having me. And thank you for all that you do for our profession, but more importantly, all the uh, young people that are getting into our line of